0: Tonight on the readout.
1: Now, for two years, we've heard the story from the the people on the January 6th committee. We've heard the story about how it was an insurrection, and I'm going to tell you something right now it was not an insurrection.
0: The Republicans' insurrection field trip to the jail holding January 6th accused criminals and the dangerous rhetoric of calling their arrests political. The Democratic Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett, who observed that visit today, joins me in just a moment. Also tonight, on the same day that Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg received a threat warning, I am going to kill you, Donald Trump warns of, quote, potential death and destruction if Bragg indicts him. Plus, Trump attorney Evan Corcoran testifies before a federal grand jury in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation as former chief of staff Mark Meadows and other top Trump aides are ordered to testify in the probe of Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election. Good evening, everyone. I'm Ali Velshi in for Joy Reid. We begin tonight with a quick look back at the evening of January 6th, 2021. You'll remember, Congress was back in session just hours after a violent mob provoked by the then outgoing president stormed the United States Capitol in an attempt to overturn a Democratic election. And for a moment, we saw something in the Republican Party that we hadn't seen in a while rationality. We condemn the violence that took place here in the strongest possible terms. We will not be kept out of this chamber, by thugs, mobs, or threats. We will not bow to lawlessness or intimidation. Riders and thugs don't run the Capitol. We're the United States of America. Now, it was then that the Republican Party seemed to agree with something that should be a pretty basic sentiment in a constitutional democracy. That insurrection is bad and that insurrection is a crime. Fast forward today, and that sentiment is nowhere to be found. Instead, the Republican Party has fully embraced the very people who tried to dismantle democracy. In fact, just hours ago, a delegation of lawmakers, including Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, went on a field trip of sorts to the D.C. jail to visit some of those rioters.
1: There were many, many reports of of how they're being abused um, and how their rights are being abused. And remember, these are pre-trial January 6th defendants. The reason why we're here is because the two-tier justice system has to end.
0: Okay, let's be clear. The reason the rioters are being held at that facility is because they've been deemed dangerous to the community or have refused to obey conditions of release. That includes rioters like Daniel Rodriguez, who drove a stun gun into the neck of the former Washington police officer Michael Fanon and Samuel Lazar, who's seen on video using a bullhorn to urge rioters to steal police officers guns. William Crestman, who's a member of the Proud Boys. He's being held because a judge has determined that he's a flight risk. Eric Christie, who was in an hours-long standoff with law enforcement. Images of Christie outside the Capitol on the 6th show a hammer hanging from his belt. He's alleged to have told police when they tried to arrest him, quote, better come here shooting. These are the people the Republican Party has chosen to embrace and to prioritize. These are the people who have interestingly made Republicans finally care about inhumane prison conditions when activists have been sounding the alarm about that issue for decades. It's important to remember when you hear these lawmakers claim that these incarcerated insurrectionists are political prisoners, that that's not the case. These imprisoned people are accused of committing crimes, real crimes, not political ones. The Justice Department has arrested over 1,000 people for things like assaulting police obstructing an official proceeding, breaking and entering into a federal building, destroying federal property. All of that is illegal. Their actions may have been motivated by their politics, but none of the prosecutions are political. Joining me now is the Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett of Texas. She was one of two Democrats to join that trip to the D.C. jail today. Representative Crockett, good to see you tonight. Thank you for being with us.
2: Great to see you as well.
0: Let's talk about this trip. Why were you on it? You were one of two Democrats on it. What was your purpose in being there?
2: Yeah, there had to be someone that was going to keep them honest. I mean, we know that the people that were going on this trip, especially the one that led this trip, um, they have a little bit of an issue with the truth. Um, so there needed to be someone, because you couldn't walk in and film exactly what was going on. And you know, it's interesting. It's kind of like there's seemingly two versions of what happened on January 6th. I had a completely different experience walking into this jail. And also, my chairman wanted to make sure—I call him my chairman sorry, my ranking member wanted to make sure that there was someone who actually had a frame of reference for what prisons and jails look like and what those conditions can look like. And that would be someone like me, considering the fact that I've done criminal defense for almost two decades. And also I've been a civil rights lawyer.
0: Let's talk about what you saw while you were there. We heard a little bit of what Marjorie Taylor Greene suggests that she saw. What did you see?
2: I saw um, a delegation of elected congressional members that were starstruck when they got an opportunity to finally see the January 6th inmates. I saw privileged people, is what I saw. Um, the criminal justice system that I'm used to seeing does not afford them tablets, tablets that allow them to end up with a number one song on iTunes because they're able to record or they're able to text their family members whenever they want to. Um, I've never had a client that had the ability to access a laptop for weeks um, so that they could review in the privacy of their single cell jail um, their discovery. Uh, the the. Privilege that I saw was actually quite astounding, even though we were supposed to talk about or review how bad the conditions were. If anything, I have never seen a jail that afforded so many privileges to anyone. And as I said, I've been licensed in Texas, Arkansas and in federal courts for almost two decades.
0: So this is important because you have been a criminal defense attorney. You have seen inhumane conditions. And that's a real thing, right? Bad conditions in prison in America is a real thing. And to the extent that there are members of Congress from both parties who'd like to tackle that, it's a separate issue than treating uh, January 6 rioters as political prisoners.
2: Yeah, no. I mean, listen. We know what this was. This was nothing more than a political stunt. And while you're covering this, that is part of the problem. The media continually gives Marjorie Taylor Greene this microphone to spew nonsense and lies. Essentially, what happened today was a field trip. Um, the the Republicans got to see their heroes. The January 6ers got to see their heroes. Everybody was kumbayaing. I was the one that looked a little out of place, for sure. Um, definitely, no one was coming up to me, so excited to talk to me. There was one gentleman that wanted to talk to me. Um, But, you know, what's frustrating is the idea that—I think back to Nelson Mandela and what he went through. And I've actually walked that prison cell that he was in. He was not afforded these opportunities. So, these false— the, these false comparisons that they are drawing, it's really offensive, because we have real issues in this country. We have real political prisoners. We we saw what happened with Brittany Griner, and we saw where the Republican Party was on her actually being released. They were against that. They felt like that was problematic. Um, yet under these circumstances, for whatever reason, they felt like it made sense to have senior colleagues, senior Democrats, go in and sit down and talk to and coddle people that tried to kill them. It did not make sense. Um, and so, having somebody like myself and Robert Garcia, who are both freshmen, who were not victims on that day of their heinous crimes, uh, we were the only ones, in my opinion, that were really best suited to actually go in, because it did not make sense to try to put um, my, my members, my colleagues, at risk of something uh, even more tragic happening in this jail.
0: I just for the record, I've been excited to talk to you uh, all day and you and I have always enjoyed our conversations. Uh, Congressman Garcia did make the point that he said um, these prisoners are being held in much better conditions than mo- most black and brown inmates in prisons across the country. This is a point that you make a lot, that that black and brown people have been in uh, lousy prison conditions, uh, incarcerated in per capita percentages much higher than pretty much anywhere else in, in the free world for a very long time. If If that were really the topic we were discussing tonight, that would be a good thing. If if a bipartisan group of, of members of Congress were touring prisons around the country to say, how do we make this better? That would be a good thing.
2: That would be a fantastic thing. That would actually be doing what we were elected to do, which is to solve problems, to make life better. You know, listen, it's still prison. So prison is never going to be the Ritz Carlton. Right. But at the same time, we're talking about is is are they living in inhumane situations or not? And I can tell you there is nothing inhumane about this. They were able to freely move about. They were able to uh, communicate without having to worry about a recorded phone call. They had air conditioning, which is something we don't have in Texas. They also, I asked about the the women in the facility, and I asked them about their access to sanitary napkins. They've got that. That's free. Their medical care is free. A lot of places they charge you for that kind of stuff. And so So, you know, it's still jail. I get it. It's never going to be nice. Right. But in in the grand scheme of jails, let me tell you something. Um, I've had a client that died. I don't see someone sitting there and being neglected because they're not uh, they're not heard. They've got literally iPads or whatever they call them, tablets where they can make a sick call electronically. Um, And they have access to these tablets for 22 out of 24 hours, the only two hours they don't have access to them, is when they're charging them. I mean, it's absolutely insane. This was an excuse for Marjorie Taylor Greene to have another press conference. This was another excuse for them to be able to speak to these January 6th defendants and put their stories together without having to worry about them being recorded, which is normally what uh, everyday individuals have to go through when they're going to see their loved ones and their friends.
0: Congressman to from Crockett. Always good to see you. Thank you for joining us this Great evening. Great to see you, too. Let's bring in the Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California. He served on the January 6th Select Committee. He's a candidate for the United States uh, Senate. Uh, Congressman Schiff, good to see you. Thank you for being with us this evening. Um, The the news uh, from Donald Trump today uh, has been troubling, even by Donald Trump's standards, where he warned of potential, I don't know whether you want to call it warning threat, whatever. He said that if he gets indicted, uh, there's a potential for death and destruction if he's charged. I, I never really know how to think about this, but it seems like even Donald Trump has upped the ante. Uh,
3: I think that's uh, unquestionably the case. It is just a marvel to me, incomprehensible, really, that this man has any support uh, of anyone to run for dog catcher in this country. Here he is, after the experience of inciting violence against the Capitol on January 6th, once again doing his best to incite people to commit uh, political violence. Uh, There's no question this is meant to be a threat to the Manhattan District Attorney. It's meant to be a call to his uh, most fervent supporters that this is how he wants them to respond because this is what he is predicting. Uh, And it is just so reckless and irresponsible. But it does illustrate the pattern with Trump, which is anytime he escapes accountability, he goes on to do worse and worse and worse. And what we're seeing now is even more extreme. Uh, a, a call to violence that we've seen from him before.
0: The, the interesting thing is, and, and he will say I didn't threaten anything, I just warned you that there's going to be death and destruction, but this is how he operates, right? You don't actually have to do anything. You just have to suggest that Alvin Bragg is a, a tool of the state or George Soros or whatever he wants to say. You you just have to suggest that the FBI is the deep state after the, the Mar-a-Lago um, uh, search and, and somebody opens fire on an FBI office. The, the p- People can be influenced by to do the work for you. Donald Trump doesn't have to lift a finger.
3: Well, that's exactly it. You know, in the past, one of Trump's favorite expressions was people are saying this is was his way of sort of suggesting an idea, uh, suggesting an attack without taking full ownership of it. He was doing something similar, which is, you know, death and destruction could result if you were to charge me, if you hold me accountable for things. Uh, and then if death and destruction do uh, manifest itself, he can say, "Well." This is exactly what I warned about, but I wasn't calling for it. Uh, But there's no question what's going on here. Uh, And, you know, this is sadly where the leadership of the Republican Party is right now. Uh, As you were just covering, they're glorifying people who beat police officers on January 6th. Let's make no mistake about it. Uh, They are glorifying the assault on law enforcement as long as it's being done in the service of their dear leader, Donald Trump. Uh, And here they're defending him, even though he's threatening uh, the district attorney of Manhattan, the people of Manhattan with potential violence. Uh, You would wonder whether there's any any floor to how low they are willing to go to support this man, no matter what he does. But apparently we have yet to find that floor.
0: But the legal jeopardy continues, uh, whether it's here in Manhattan, where the, uh, the, the grand jury continues its work and probably will into next week, and in the, the uh, federal investigation in, in which the executive privilege that was extended or claimed by certain people, including Mark Meadows, has now been struck down. There are going to have to be more people who testify before that grand jury, which, again, you, you, it, it's, it's different from the January 6th committee because these people are going to have to go there under oath. And at some point, they've got the evidence. They know what the January 6th committee did. They've they've got other testimony. That is a game changer. The news tonight that Mark Meadows and others will need to testify is is a big deal.
3: It's a huge deal. And this may be ultimately the most significant development in terms of Trump's liability of the last month. And it is exactly what you say. That is, witnesses are appearing before the grand jury in the Mar-a-Lago case already who are likely testifying against Donald Trump, exposing potential criminality of Donald Trump, uh, and others like Mark Meadows in the even more serious investigation involving January 6th are being required to testify. Their claims of executive privilege are failing. Uh, And when they came before the January 6th committee, well, some of them came before us and some refused like Meadows. Some that came before us uh, basically refused to answer questions about their conversations with Donald Trump. Those uh, evasions, it now appears, will not succeed in the Justice Department investigation. And that uh, is the most chilling, I would think, from Donald Trump's perspective, because these people like Mark Meadows and others around Donald Trump uh, are in the best position to talk about Trump's state of mind, what he understood, the dangers, his unwillingness to lift a finger once the violence began. They could be among the most serious witnesses to date.
0: Congressman, good to see you as always. Thank you for joining us. Congressman Adam Schiff of California. Still ahead on the readout, Trump's less than subtle choice of location for his first official campaign rally should come as no surprise after he warns of death and destruction if he's indicted. We're back after this. Overnight, the former president made his most explicit implication of violence, warning about potential death and destruction, his words, if he is charged for the hush money scheme being investigated by a New York grand jury. The warning is being seen by some as an indication that Trump, who is still the leading Republican presidential candidate, may be trying to foment insurrection again if he's charged. tomorrow, he's giving another dangerous bat call to his most loyal and violent right-wing henchmen holding his first major campaign rally in Waco, Texas. Nothing wrong with Waco, Texas, but this just happens to be the 30th anniversary of that deadly standoff between the members of the Branch Davidian extremist sect and agents from the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and the FBI. That siege, you'll recall, ended after 51 days when fires broke out during the FBI's attempt to breach the compound. Seventy-six people were killed, including 25 children. Waco has since been embraced by right-wing extremists. The domestic terrorist, Timothy McVeigh, bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City on the two-year anniversary of the Waco fire. The Houston Chronicle slammed Trump for picking Waco for his event, writing... Quote, militia members and conspiracists know exactly what Trump's Waco visit symbolizes. They've heard him castigate the FBI and the deep state. What he says will likely set the tone for the presidential campaign to come. Every American should be concerned, end quote. Joining me now, Dean Obadala, host of the Dean Obadala Show on Sirius XM, and Olivia Troy, a former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Good evening to both of you. Thank you for being here. Dean, let's just talk about this for a second. There's nothing wrong with Waco, Texas. I've been there. It's a great place with great people in it. But unfortunately, it will always have symbolism attached to it and holding a rally in Waco, Texas for no other particular reason. There's no other reason that Donald Trump is going there. His campaign says it's well-located between other important places in Texas. That's a nonsensical reason. Uh, we, we know what this is.
4: Certainly. Donald Trump announced his candidacy for 2024 in November. This is the very first rally. He could have picked any city, any state, any time. And he announced just last Friday, while headlines were swirling, that he might be getting indicted, he picked Waco, Texas, in the middle of the 30th anniversary of the siege. The message is clear. It's And I wrote about it for MSNBC Daily. The article goes up tomorrow. I interviewed extremism experts. They said this is not a dog whistle. This is a train whistle to anti-government actors. And these are the type of people Donald Trump's cultivating. He's Again, this is big with the militia movements, the patriot movements, the so-called patriot movements. And he is bringing them in. And after January 6th, it has to alarm all of us because is he building an army or a militia to protect him and help him and avenge him? Potentially. And that's what's so frightening here.
0: Olivia, the Houston Chronicle uh, called Waco a shrine for the proud boys, the three percenters, the oath keepers and other anti-government extremists and conspiracists. Your old boss, uh, Mike Pence, you know, came out and said uh, a week and a half or two weeks ago, you know, what Donald Trump did uh, was was threatened the, the lives of his family and that he will be judged by history. There's there's really becoming a very clear line here about whether the Republican candidate for the the, the for presidency is going to be a, a conservative or a or this what Donald Trump is 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 rallying people to to do.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the path ahead for the Republican Party, but I'll say this. The road ahead for the Republican Party right now to me looks like Donald Trump because when he's doing these types of things, when he's holding this rally on the what 30th anniversary of what happened in Waco and the campaign knows exactly what they're doing, trust me, I know. I know how they plan these things out. I lived it firsthand. Saw that nightmare and I know what they're capable of. All of these other Republicans that are not publicly rebuking this, that are standing by it, that are actually equally undermining the judicial system, the same people that have attacked the DOJ along the way in the past couple of months, the same people who have attacked the FBI in the last couple of months, all of that has led to the culmination of this moment of the rally that Trump is holding, and they have enabled it. And so all of these people are equally as complicit. And that's why I see the Republican Party as the future with Trump. Because no. while they may sit there behind closed doors and say, no, we're kind of looking away. We're going to steer away from this. They are enabling his talking points and it's like everything he's doing, right? They're standing by and they're letting it happen.
0: Yeah, once in a while, Dean, you'll see... Um Mitch McConnell come out and say something, you know, that suggests that he doesn't think Donald Trump's the best idea for the future of the Republican Party. But Olivia makes a valid point, really undermining the judiciary, undermining law enforcement, undermining the FBI. We saw after the, the, the Mar-a-Lago uh, search, somebody opened fire on an uh, FBI office. Waco is really ground zero for opening fire on the on the FBI. This is a different choice than sort of trying to avoid being in Donald Trump's bad graces, which we've seen uh, McCarthy do and others do. This is different. This is somebody who is veering well outside of the lane of lawfulness. The whole idea of there will be death and destruction if I'm uh, arrested. He had an image that he posted on True Social, which I understand has now been Mm -hmm. taken down, uh, where Donald Trump was holding a bat, and the guy in the picture uh, cropped next to him was the Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg got a death threat today. I will kill Mm -hmm. you. Um, So, so we've crossed the line.
4: Yes, we have. And look. I have to be blunt this is akin to an isis and al-qaeda recruiter radicalizing people to commit violence on their behalf instead donald trump is doing it on his behalf and i don't i'm not over the top by saying that i've talked to extremism experts who've made the same analogy to me that is true and here's the frightening thing to me i don't believe gop leaders are silent because they fear trump they're silent because they agree with trump either the violence or they agree with the power that he gives them by being silent they're complicit and there's something deeply troubling here. There's was a CBS poll last year, and I encourage people to look at it. They asked Republicans, how do you view January 6th? 51% of Republicans, 51% view January 6th as an act of patriotism. That has been going up. That should concern us when over half of one political party sees a violent attack on our capital to keep Donald Trump in power as patriotic. We are dealing with, and this is, again, academically technical, a fascist movement on U.S. soil. It must be called that. It must be called that by Democrats. Don't be timid about it. It is fascism. And they can make the case why it's—they're not being over the top. It's academic. What it is violence to retain and acquire political power? That's what Trump is doing.
0: So, Olivia, you had actually said for some time you were kind of hoping that Mike Pence would take a stronger position on this. He took a position on it, right? He's—he's—he's he's, he's quite decidedly on the the right side of the uh, insurrection versus not insurrection line, but it doesn't get him much steam. Those Republicans who are not doing what what Donald uh, what what, what uh, Dean is saying, the forty nine percent of Republicans who don't view January 6th as an act of patriotism, they're 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 not they're not controlling anything right now.
1: No, they're not. This is the party of MAGA. That's who is in charge. It's a party party of Marjorie Taylor Greene. That is who is running the party right now. And if we are not careful, we will end up with these people back in the Oval Office And so when I view this, I don't see this as Republicans and Democrat voters. I see this as Americans needing to take a stand against what's happening here. And look, Dee's right. This is a movement of domestic extremism and the culmination of with these groups that have been emboldened and empowered. This is fascism on the rise in our country. We need to be taking this very seriously when we're in a world where anti-Semitism is on the rise here. We're seeing anti-Asian crimes. We're seeing this across the board. This is a country and we are in trouble about what's happening here. And like, Republicans are saying DeSantis, oh, maybe we can follow him. We can support him. He's better. He is not. He's just a different version of Donald Trump if you look at what he's actually proposing and the policies that he's enacting.
0: Dean, when you said it sounds like a train whistle, not a dog whistle, I, I it was two weeks mm-hmm. ago when Donald Trump came out and said, I am your retribution, um, uh, yes. r- reminded of uh, reminded me of Mussolini saying I'm your avenger. I mean, this kind of language is is it, 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 it's grievance, but it's hey, they're coming for you. All you have between them, meaning, I guess, the government of the deep state or Democrats or pedophiles or George Soros. And 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 you is me, Donald Trump. I am going to I'm here to defend you and avenge you and, and 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 create retribution.
4: You know, people should take a step back for a second. Can you believe this? The United States of America in 2023, when one major party, their leader of their party attempted a coup incited a a terrorist attack and the GOP base in a brand new poll today loves him more than ever. This is a wake up call for all of us. This is not normal times. And Ali, you know, as Muslims, they told us on the right. If we don't denounce terrorism, we're complicit. We agree with it. The GOP, they're not only not denouncing it. They're supporting the man who gave us a terrorist attack. And January 6th wasn't after domestic terrorism per DOJ and the FBI. It only happened because of Donald Trump. So we're in a very difficult position. It's alarming. I don't want people to be afraid. Just be aware of what's going on.
0: Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. As always, Dean Obidale and Olivia Troy. Dean's got a uh, a story on this posting tomorrow morning on MSNBC Daily. Coming up next on The Readout, Trump's legal woes continue to escalate as his attorney, Evan Corcoran, testifies before the federal grand jury investigating Trump's stash of classified documents. The Readout continues after this. While a Manhattan grand jury investigating the Stormy Daniels hush money scheme remains on pause, there was movement on some of the other criminal investigations that Donald Trump is facing. One of Trump's lawyers, Evan Corcoran, was back in a D.C. court today for nearly three and a half hours. He'd been ordered to return to answer questions before a grand jury there investigating Trump's mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Now, Corcoran is perhaps best known for drafting the June 3rd certification letter signed by another Trump lawyer, Christina Bob, stating that all classified documents at Mar-a-Lago had been returned to federal authorities after a, quote, diligent search, end quote, had been conducted. Of course, the FBI's search last August revealed that statement to be blatantly false, as more than a 100 additional classified documents were found, including some in Trump's personal office. According to two sources who spoke to the New York Times, Corcoran did not intend to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination when he testified today, underscoring that he's not the target of the special counsel's scrutiny. A federal judge has also ordered Corcoran to turn over additional documents tied to his case which ABC News describes as, quote, handwritten notes, invoices and transcriptions of personal audio recordings, end quote. And in the other investigation led by the special counsel involving Trump's involvement in the January 6th attack and attempts to overturn the 2020 election, the same federal judge has delivered another blow to the former president, According to NBC News, the judge, Beryl Howell, rejected Trump's executive privilege claim and has ordered former top aides to comply with subpoenas, which means that many of the people closest to Trump will need to testify before the grand jury. Take a look at these people. Look at these names on the screen. Mark Meadows, Robert O'Brien, Stephen Miller, Dan Scavino. They're going to need to reappear to answer questions related to their interaction with Trump that they declined to answer during their first visit. Many of them declined to talk to the January 6th committee, too. Joining me now is Nick Ackerman. He's a former assistant special Watergate prosecutor, a former assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of New York and somebody with whom I have spent many, many hours talking about the various things that that Donald Trump did during his administration. But it almost feels like we're in another plane now. We're in another level I was talking to Adam Schiff a little while ago who thought that this last development that I just told the viewers about, this um, th- the fact that the executive privilege is not going to work for a number of these uh, close aides to Donald Trump, he thinks that may be the biggest development yet. Oh, I think it's huge
5: because they have to go in. They either testify or they're going to assert their Fifth Amendment privilege, meaning that a truthful answer would tend to incriminate them. And at that point, Jack Smith can hand them a immunity order and they will have to testify. And I don't think too many of these people are gonna want to lie for Donald Trump. Now, Mark Meadows, I think, is really the weak link here. He's the person that the government, I think, most wants to turn. I mean, according to what we learned in that January 6th committee, uh, he had direct conversations with people. Everybody, all all over the place, yeah. Yeah, Everybody, all over the place, including Roger Stone and uh, Steve Bannon and General Flynn. Mainly, he had the connection with the people that were up on the Capitol Hill with Roger Stone and the Proud Boys uh, and the other groups that were organizing up there. He can really provide the glue that ties Donald Trump directly to the violence at the Capitol. So this is extremely significant and it opens up a whole new can of worms for Donald Trump and is really nothing but more bad news this week for Donald Trump.
0: So let's just think about this. We we think we know a lot about what Meadows and these others were involved with on January 6th. But we don't fully know because they they ex- they had a, they claimed executive privilege to not testify right. uh, before this this uh, grand jury. And they didn't go to before January 6th in many cases. So the January 6th committee had documents. They had the other side of texts. They knew what the communications were. But there's something different about having to testify under oath.
5: Totally. Totally. They have to actually explain what's in these documents. At one point, Mark Meadows actually turned over a number of his emails and then suddenly got cold feet after he was basically warned by Donald Trump not to cooperate. Um, But there are a number of emails they have and there are lots of questions that can be asked of him. Uh, And he really if he goes in there and lies, he's putting himself in real jeopardy.
0: Let's talk about the New York grand jury. What, what, what do you think is going on right now? We had all sorts of uh, commotion right. about the fact that something was going to happen last week. Now there seems to be some sort of a pause, may or may not be another witness called. What do you think is going on? Oh,
5: I think it's just the normal course of making sure that everything is absolutely correct in this indictment, uh, that they're making sure that they've got the evidence and they need that the indictment is drafted the way it is. I mean, ironically, what's happened in the last couple of days, even today, with what Donald Trump did in threatening Alan Brown that ought to be put into the indictment In charges I just want as to show crime. people
0: he's ta- Donald Trump, believe it or not, actually took down a post that he posted. Like I, that doesn't happen all that often. Right. But I want to put this was on Truth Social, his post. It's two pictures spliced together. On the left is Donald Trump with a baseball bat. On the right is his prosecutor, Al- Alvin Bragg. Right. Now, you were a, you were a prosecutor with the Southern District of New York. How, how does this go over when you, you, you imply a threat towards your prosecutor with a baseball bat? It goes over into account for obstruction of justice. That's what it goes into.
5: And that's what they ought to do. They ought to put that in. It's a serious felony. Um, it's going to be an easy one to prove. They've got the picture. They've got the statements that he made, uh, today on his, um, truth social.
0: Um, I, I think that is, Because nobody likes their prosecutor, just uh, for the record. of course not. You may not even like your dentist, but you definitely don't like, you like your dentist more than you like your prosecutor. You were a prosecutor. They must threaten prosecutors and judges all the time.
5: No, that doesn't happen all the time. Not at all. I can't say I got that many threats over a course of time. I mean, people will say bad things about you, but threats, no. That is really unusual. It just doesn't happen. I mean, even the biggest mafia bosses that I put away, they just never had any kind of no threats whatsoever. I Do mean, you I think,
0: think this is, you think that's a serious matter? This, right? this is way over the Alvin top. Because Alvin Bragg did get an actual threat today. Oh, uh, I know. We're going to kill you, and Powder went to his office. I mean, this is, I understand he wants a tight case, but this is this is a lot of pressure.
5: Oh, it is, but he's being provided more possible crimes to charge. I mean, I've never seen a defendant like this. If I were his attorney, I would tell him to stop talking about it, keep his mouth shut, because this is exactly the kind of trouble you get yourself in by doing what
0: Donald Trump is doing. Maybe maybe some attorney did tell him because it's not often that Donald Trump takes something down or takes something back. And he actually took that post down today. Nick, good to see you again, my friend. Excellent to see you. Nick Ackerman is a former uh, assistant special Watergate prosecutor. He's a former uh, assistant attorney, a U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Up next on The Readout, another roller coaster week for the U.S. economy as officials try to navigate a strong economy, low unemployment, stubbornly high inflation and banking jitters. Is a recession on the horizon? We'll be right back. It has been a wild week for the economy, kicked off by Senator Elizabeth Warren slamming the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell over his handling of banking regulations and the inflation fight.
4: My views on Jay Powell are well known at this point. He has had two jobs. Uh, one is to deal with monetary policy. Yeah. One is to deal with regulation. He has failed at both. I don't think he should be chairman of the Federal Reserve. I have said it as mm-hmm. publicly as I know how to say it.
0: Those remarks came days before the Fed raised its benchmark interest rates by another quarter percent. This is the Fed's ninth hike since last March. But is it going to be enough to avert a recession? J.P. Morgan doesn't think so. Its strategists say we are, quote, already past the point of no return. That's according to Fortune magazine. Another potential train wreck on Wednesday, the Treasury secretary said regulators are not looking to provide blanket deposit insurance to stabilize the U.S. banking system without approval by Congress. Right now, as you know, deposits are insured up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per account. Joining me now is Kenneth Rogoff. He's a professor of economics at Harvard University. Ken, uh, you're the guy I turn to when we have these questions. These are multiple questions all at the same time. We've got jittery markets. We've got a jittery banking system. Uh, we've got stubborn inflation. We've got interest rates going up and we have low unemployment and generally speaking, a country that thinks the economy is doing OK. When you put that all into a pot and mix it up, what do you get?
6: Something that's very hard to read. Um, The economy is good, but inflation is pretty stubborn and pretty high. If the Federal Reserve is willing to leave the inflation and bring it down really slowly, so maybe instead of a soft landing, as people talk about circling around the airport a lot of times before they land. Maybe it's possible to avert a recession, but it's 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 very tough. They're worried if they leave inflation for too long, it's going to end up uh, feeding into interest rates because people will want to be compensated for the inflation.
0: That's their fear. Let's talk about interest rates. We are looking at about six. 6- 6% and change. 6% basically if you want a 30-year fixed mortgage. That's more than double what it was a couple of years ago. Um, if you carry an, uh, a balance on your credit card right now, you might be looking at 20% right now. The other side of the equation is unemployment continues to be really low. That's the fight that Elizabeth Warren and, and Jay Powell got into because he said we have to raise interest rates by X amount of money. It'll cool off the job market. And Elizabeth Warren says, but that means 2 million people maybe you know, uh, uh, maybe out of a job. Are you prepared to make that trade off? And he said, look, better to make the trade off for two million people than the entire population. It's a tough situation here. We've got low unemployment and people spend the money that they are
6: Yeah, I mean, if we leave inflation up, It'll have the problem that it'll make everything more expensive for everyone, not just in the cost, but I emphasize the interest rates. You think mortgage rates are high now? Wait till people decide that inflation's around forever. They're going to be a lot higher. The government's going to have to pay more. And it reaches a situation where then they have to tighten even more for longer. I, You know, it's a tough coming out of the pandemic. I think there was no Easy answer to exactly what to do. It's not easy to read things. I think Jay Powell's actually done pretty well. There were some big mistakes in the regulatory oversights with the Silicon Valley Bank that failed, but uh, g- given that they got behind, uh, you know, I think uh, there's really not a big alternative to raising. Although, you know, we've reached a point as he said, uh, they may need to pause. They may need to stop. I don't I think where people have to get used to is the interest rates. You said three percent to six percent. They're probably going to be higher the next decade than they were the last decade. Maybe not this much, but higher.
0: Ken, I'm going to just brag about you a little bit. You were the chief economist for the International Monetary Fund. You have your B.A. from Yale. You have your Ph.D. from MIT. Um, You know a lot more about this than I do. But why aren't all bank deposits insured? Why why is every dollar in a bank not insured? Because the fuel of the banking system is that people put their money in. People with extra money put their money in a bank that then gets lent lent out to other people. Shouldn't all bank deposits be insured?
6: Well, most people's money is insured. You're insured up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. But there's a lot of other money in the banking system that's above that. Silicon Valley Bank, the one that failed, had accounts with billions of dollars in it. Sometimes those pay higher interest rates than you and I get. And the trouble is, if they insure everything, uh, I'll let you in on a secret, bankers do risky stuff to make money. And if they think they're they're not going to get their deposits to, to run away, then there's no stopping it. So we're in a tough spot right now because they... Even though Treasury Secretary Yellen's been trying to walk it back, basically, people think they've guaranteed everything. And I think that's a reasonable read of what they did.
0: Ken, good to see you as always. Thank you for being with us. Kenneth Rogoff is uh, is, uh, the former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund and an economist at Harvard. All right, coming up next, librarians find themselves on the front lines in the escalating war over banning books. But fortunately, they've got a champion in 100-year-old Floridian Grace Lynn. Her incredible speech at a school board meeting is next. The far right crusade against education has reached a new level with the American Library Association reporting a record number of demands to censor library books and materials in 2020, a 74 percent increase from 2021. Many Americans are fighting back, though, including a 100 year old Floridian named Grace Lynn, who brilliantly called out the fascism inherent in book banning at a school board meeting this week. She explained to the board that her husband was killed at the age of 27 in World War II, defending the very freedom she says is being taken away in classrooms and libraries throughout this country.
4: One of the freedoms that the Nazis crushed was the freedom to read the books they banned. They stopped the free press, banned and burned books, banned books and burning books are the same. Both are done for the same reason. Fear of knowledge. Fear is not freedom. Fear is not liberty. Fear is control. My husband died as a father of freedom. I am a mother of liberty. Band books need to be proudly displayed and protected from school boards like this. Thank you very much. That was
0: an incredibly compelling speech uh, from that Florida and the nation really needed to hear. Now, if you recognize Lynn's story, it's because she's been featured on this network before as a member of our Velshi Band Book Club. She had sent us a photo of the quilt she made herself when she was just 99 years old, highlighting banned and challenged books, which she also featured during her address to the school board. Now, tomorrow, Grace Lynn will be my special guest on Velshi, the first time that a member of the Velshi Band Book Club is our featured guest. Velshi airs weekends 10 a.m. to noon Eastern in Joy's old spot. You don't want to miss it. And that's tonight's readout. Joy's back on Monday.